please turn to Psalm 98. While you're turning, if you're a visiting family member or a friend who's not from the Prescott area, can you raise your hand? Can we see all of you? Yes. All right. Welcome. Uh, glad to have you this morning. Hopefully your presents are still there when you get home. Uh, we normally go verse by verse through books of the Bible, understanding that that's how God has laid them out. So if we want to understand all that he's saying, we think it's best to go through uh, verse 1, 1 to the end of whatever book we're studying and really understand all that he's saying in the scriptures. Uh, today is a little different. Uh, we're going through a study in 1 Corinthians, and I thought with so much of our attention focused on the incarnation of Christ, uh, we can take a break from talking about meat offered to idols for just a Sunday. We'll get back to that next Sunday. Lots of rich truth in next Sunday's passage, by the way, so just a heads up there. Uh, but today I want to direct your thoughts to Psalm 98. Psalm 98, I've entitled this message, Joy to the World, so please follow along in the psalm as I read a psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the psalm that Isaac Watts based his song, Joy to the World, off of. We'll sing it at the end of our service, but Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World based on Psalm 98. And spoiler alert, I'm not trying to be Scrooge today, but he did not write that song as a Christmas song. It's not about the first coming of Christ. It's actually about the second coming of Christ. It's the second advent. And I think that the reason we've taken it and brought it into the celebration of the first coming is because there are a number of things that came true in a small way at the birth of Christ. The nations were made aware of His salvation. Wise men from not Jerusalem, not Judea, but from the east came to worship the King of Israel. So there were some smaller fulfillments of Psalm 98 in the first advent, but all of Psalm 98 will come to fruition in the second advent, the second coming. One other reason I wanted to teach this psalm this morning is because it's a call to sing for joy. And during this season, we remember the call to sing for joy. We, we sing things like joy to the world, and evidently uh, even secular songs like jingle bells are supposed to bring a smile to our face, and um, candy canes, and things like that. It's a time of year when lots of people around the world are calling on one another to be joyful and to express joy. 
But sometimes that doesn't always work, does it? Sometimes we don't always feel joy during this season. In our own church, this has been a season of difficulty and trial. Just in the last month, it's been a season of loss and hardship and difficulty. This year has been hard. And so you can't just hold up a candy cane and say, well, be joyful. There's more to it than that. Some of you don't care if there are lights on the tree. That doesn't get your heart merry and bright. Um, the idea of going wassailing doesn't get you excited, for those of you that know what that is. <laughs> See, mere sentimentality and decorations can't relieve in a lasting way a longing and hurting heart. But the truth of Scripture can. The truth of God's Word can. The truth of His character for His people can. And I want to tell you, if we look at Psalm 98 and hear these calls to make a joyful noise, to break forth in joyous song, to sing praises, to do so loudly, and again at the very end, or the, in verse 8, uh, 6, to make a joyful noise again. If, if, we're, if we constantly hear that repeated theme, be joyful, be joyful, be joyful, there's a temptation for us to look around and say, well, how can I be when this is going on, when that's going on? Have you seen the news? Do you know what I've done recently? How can I be joyful? Well, let me say this. If you feel that strain while people sing songs of praise, you're not alone. And you're not alone to the people who would originally sing this song. This song, Psalm 98, was sung by the people of God, not when they were in Jerusalem. They were in captivity. And they sang this song to remind them of all that God had done in the past and all that He would do in the future. While they're away from the temple, the place that God said is where you would meet with Him, they're away from the temple, they're away from their own houses, they're under a foreign government which does not give worship and submission to the one true and living God. That's the context for the people who were originally singing this song. This song wasn't sung when everything was merry and bright. This call to sing for joy was sung in exile. So I thought it might be helpful to walk through it briefly this morning and maybe God's Word, I pray that God's Word would give you a certain hope and joy based on what He's done and what He promises to do in the future. Let, let me say this before I dive in. Um, we went through Psal the Psalms book three a few years ago. How many of you were here for that? Remember that? Yeah. Book three, as I told you then, was a series of songs written while the people were in exile. This song, this Psalm, Psalm 98, is in book four. Book four, the people are still in exile. But the difference between book three and book four, book three is very dark. Book four has a theme of the Lord reigning. So they're still in exile, but now their eyes are looking upwards and saying things like in Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. We're here under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. We're here away from God's dwelling place, our temple in Jerusalem. We know that our own sin has caused our exile. We're here living in this, but we know the Lord reigns over all the earth. And in book four, we find our Psalm, Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song. He's done marvelous things. 
So Psalm 98 is a psalm for people who are in sorrow and despair that are really singing to their own hearts, praying these songs as they sing them, preaching to themselves. And in this psalm, you see at the beginning a recitation of the fact that God has done things for this people, and then at the end, the fact that He will do some things for this people. He will have the final say in the earth. So even at a time that is full of anguish and heartache, and this is our theme for the morning, even at a time that is full of anguish and heartache, for those who trust in God, there is great joy to be found. There is great joy to be found. So this morning, two reasons that we can sing for joy. Two reasons in this psalm that we can sing for joy. The first is the fact that salvation has been revealed. His salvation has been revealed. So we look to the past for that joy. And I'll give you the second point later, but just to kind of put it in your minds. Secondly, the second reason we can sing for joy is the judgment, for the judgment that He will bring. He will one day make all wrongs right again. He will bring perfect justice, the justice that the whole world really wants if you ask them. Do you want that child abuser to be appropriately punished for what he did? Yes, then trust in Jesus Christ. Every single wrong will be made right. So there are two reasons in this psalm to to sing for joy. One, for the salvation he's revealed, and second, for the judgment he'll bring. And just, just so you know, I'm getting this from the text. There are two uh, times the, the, the word for is used. Uh, look at verse one. Oh, sing the Lord a new song for. So here's the reason you can sing to the Lord a new song. He has done marvelous things. And I'll go on to a talk about his salvation. And then look down at verse nine. The reason the creation is clapping and singing to the Lord before the Lord, verse 9, for because He comes to judge the earth. So the psalm gives us these two reasons, two reasons we can sing for joy. So the first one, we can sing for joy because of the salvation that He's revealed. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He's revealed it. He's revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, this isn't just theoretical language. Nations of the earth had seen God defeat their gods for a while now. Just in the history of Israel up until this point, God had, you remember in Exodus, given those ten plagues showing that God has the power over the ten gods the Egyptians worshipped. God defeats the gods of the Egyptians, and He rescues His people in that most dramatic way out of the land of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's grasp, brings them through the Red Sea. And if you, look at, if you want to look at any, maybe the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, it's God bringing His people out of Egypt in the Exodus through the Red Sea and saving them. The Scriptures constantly point back to that moment for the people of God. So, they're looking back on the salvation that He's given them. And then they get brought into the wilderness, and it's not as if God says, I rescued you from Egypt, but now you're on your own. Get to the promised land on your own. Get to the place where I've reserved for you on your own. He doesn't do that. He still guides them. They complain and grumble and sin sexually and do all sorts of things in the wilderness, but He's committed Himself to them. So, yes, He'll discipline them, but He's still faithful to them. 
And so he saves them over and over again. He defeats the Amalekites. He defeats Jericho, a place they had to get by in order to get to Jerusalem or get to the promised land. He defeats Jericho. He's saved the people and he's continued to save the people. There's a siege from the greatest war power in the world, the Assyrian army. The Assyrians, that's the people that Jonah didn't want to go to because of how heinous they were. The Assyrians, 185,000 soldiers are encamped around Jerusalem at one point, and you think, that's it, they're done. But the angel of the Lord comes, many thinking pre-incarnate Christ, angel of the Lord comes and slays all 185,000 one night, and they don't overthrow Jerusalem. God has saved these people over and over and over again, and now they're in exile saying, this isn't right, our own sin brought us here. We're in a land that is foreign to us under a government that's foreign to us. We're not worshiping in the place we're supposed to worship. This is a problem, and that could be a cause for great despair, but they rehearse for themselves the times that God has been saving them. And according to them, they think that should lead them to sing songs of joy to Him. We sing because we can trust in the God who's for His people. Even though we're feeling the effects of the curse, we can still trust in this God who's committed Himself to us. Verse 2, the Lord's made known His salvation. He's revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. The nations have seen that the God of Israel is powerful and strong. Ask the Amalekites. Ask those in Jericho. Ask Pharaoh. He's not alive anymore, but he would tell you the God of Israel won. The nations have seen it. They've seen his salvation. Why is God that way? Why would he bear with this people? Why would he still commit himself to them? Verse 3, he's remembered his steadfast love, his love that never ends, his love that is covenant, his love that he committed to his people. It's not, it's not a whimsical love. It's a strong and fixed love. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. Said another way, he's remembered mercy and truth. He's remembered that. That's who he is for Israel. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, you know what's interesting about this? When Mary is told by an angel what's happening to her, what's going on, so we're fast-forwarding now to the time of Christ, just before He's going to be born. He's inside the womb of Mary. When God makes it known to Mary what's happening to her, she breaks out into song. And so many of the lines from her song are from this, Psalm 98. One writer said, William Plummer said, David is the voice of Psalm 98, and Mary's the echo. So David says these words, Mary now echoes them years later as God is making his salvation known to his people. Just listen to this. David says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. In Luke 1, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. David, he's done marvelous things. Mary, he who is mighty has done great things for me. David, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Mary, he has shown strength with his arm. 
David, he has made known his salvation. Mary, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. David, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Mary, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary knew Psalm 98. It's good to know the Bible when you try to understand the world around you. Mary understands it. In Matthew 1, 21, I read this earlier, the angel speaking to Joseph says, she will bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus, which means God is salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. God has made his salvation known in the Exodus, in the Red Sea, with the Amalekites, with Jericho, with the Assyrians. He's made his salvation known. People have seen it. And now Mary believes he's making his salvation known again by giving her a baby who would be called Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. find it very interesting that the Holy Spirit wants us to know when we read the Christmas story that Jesus came to save people from their sins. Not government oppression, not financial distress, not poor health. The biggest problem that we have is our sin, our rebellion against God. And the people of God have constantly been concerned about the militaries around them, the governments around them, the governments over them, and God makes it crystal clear in the Scriptures, the priority is you being saved from your sins. I've told you this before, that's why they killed Jesus. Because they thought He was the King that came to save them from Rome, from Roman rule. But in Mark 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem that final time riding on a donkey, and they're hailing him as king. And he goes into the temple and looks around the temple and then leaves. What was that all about? Why was he looking around the temple? What's going on here? He goes to Bethany, spends the night, comes back on the way into the temple. He curses a fig tree. You're not producing fruit. You're cursed. And then he comes to the temple and cleans house. He doesn't go after Rome. He goes after his own people who are corrupting the worship of God. They were in sin, and he came to save them from their sins. They wanted him to save them from Rome. He said, you need to be saved from your sins. You need to be clean, purified. And so they executed him. That's not the Savior lots of people want. They want to be saved, again, from bad government leaders, from a bad economy, from whatever it may be, whatever is frustrating them. Lord, change this, change that. But what about you? We need to be clean, cleansed, purified. And we can't do that on our own. We trust in Him. That's why He came. That's what He came to do. She'll bear a son, and you'll call His name God is salvation, because He will save His people from their sins. So I just invite you today, think of that. I know there are a lot of things that you think God needs to save you from. Not having a job, not having a family, not having the right family, whatever it may be. Christ came to save all of us from our sin.
because that's who he is. That's how much he loves. That's how much the Father loves. He came for our greatest problem. I don't know if you've ever had the um, interesting experience of buying presents for kids and spending months thinking about what you're going to get and um, saving up money and trying to get it just right, you know, the blue one or the red one. Okay, I'm trying to figure out which one to get and, and kind of give all these presents. And then at the end, uh, you know, one of them says, is that all? To which there are probably many responses that you could give, some probably better than others. Is that all? And if you were asked that after giving lots and, you know, wonderfully planned presents, um, you know, the, the answer really could be, well, there could be more. I mean, you got a bike, Johnny, but I guess I could have got you a car. I gave you $50, but I guess I could have given you 10000 Well, no, there isn't more, but I guess there could be better gifts given to you. John 3.16 says, God loved the world in this particular way. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Father gave you His Son and with His Son comes eternal life. So I want to ask, is that enough? Is that enough for you? I hope that you would see the, the love behind that gift God didn't just give the opportunity for you to have things. He gave his own son in whom there's eternal life. So I hope that you see that as a generous offering from a loving God. That's who our God is. And again, as I've told you before, there's no separation of wills between the father and the son. It's not as if the father's loving and said, go son. And the son said, I don't really want to the sun went. You can see that again in Jesus' arrest. They come for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly what's going to happen in a few hours. And John tells us in his gospel that Jesus steps forward. All the disciples would scatter in a moment. Jesus steps forward to be arrested. The heart of Jesus is to go to the cross for you and for me. That's his heart. That's who he is. That's what, who the Father is. The Father gives. The Father gave His beloved Son to us. We have all we need. Let me say that again. We have all we need. Friends, God is for us. He's for us in Christ. He's for us and He gave us Christ. We do have difficulties and pains that are real. We have losses that are real. I'm not trying to minimize those at all. I'm not, trying any, I'm not telling anyone, hey, just kind of you know, those things aren't big deals. They are. The suffering is real. It's a big deal. But I am telling you, there is something greater than the suffering. We are children of God. He's made us to be children of God. There are reasons for joy. He has made known His salvation to us. We have everything we need in Him. There's a second reason we can sing for joy in this psalm. It comes in verses 4 to 9. For the judgment that He'll bring. We can sing for joy because of the judgment He will bring. Again, I get that from verse 9. There's this call for the earth, for the world to sing, for the earth to clap its hands, 
the rivers specifically, before the Lord, for, here's why you can clap your hands, rivers, for He comes to judge the earth. So again, we can sing songs of joy, secondly, because of the judgment that He will bring. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. I mean, this is just repeated over and over again. Joy, joy, joy. Sing, sing, sing. Loud, loud, loud. It's trying to send a message here. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth and break forth into joyous song and sing praise. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. Now bring all your instruments. Not just the voices. let's, Let's get the orchestra together. This is a big deal. Any of you have ever been to a symphony? Anybody? Those are big deals. Those people practice a long time, and then all 100 of them, or however many there are, get babysitters and block it off on their calendar. They all come together. I mean, the, the composer's written the music. You put on nice clothes, you buy a ticket, you go to... I mean, there's a lot of man hours that go into symphonies. Here, Psalm 98, bring all the instruments. This is, this is something praiseworthy here, the fact that God will judge the earth rightly one day. Bring the whole orchestra. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. The Psalms are so full of king language. Of course they are. The people singing as the nations look on, knowing who the true King is over all nations. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. I told you that the theme of this right here is the coming judgment of God one day. He will judge everything rightly. He'll make all wrongs right. He'll save his people in that moment, punish his enemies that have rejected him and caused so much harm on the earth and to other people. There's a day coming where it'll all be right. And we can sing for that. But there was, there was a semi-fulfillment of that at Jesus' birth. Turn over to Matthew 2. Matthew 2. Matthew 2, look at verse 7. Mentioned this a little earlier, preached on it last Christmas. Uh, The Magi, who exactly they were, what they were doing. But let's just notice what's happening here. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly so that they make this long journey. There were probably more than three of them. Don't be fooled by Christmas songs, okay? Um, They're coming on this journey Uh, They get to Jerusalem and they ask the king of the Jews, Herod, not Jesus, they ask the king, where is he? Okay, so they've traveled a long way, they're in Jerusalem now. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We know Herod's lying. Verse 9, after listening to the king... Notice that. They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So listen, Psalm 98 telling the nations to sing loudly, join us, join us, the people of God from Israel, join us nations in singing loudly to the King, to God, the one true King. Join us in singing. Now at the birth of Christ, people from other nations come and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Now, repetition in the scriptures is trying to make a point. If something's repeated twice, pay attention. It's repeated three times. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They opened, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts that you would give to a king. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the one who thought he was more powerful as a king, they departed their own way to their own country by another way. So Psalm 98 is inviting the nations to sing to the Lord. At the birth of Jesus, other nations come and bring gifts to the Lord, the King, and they are joyful, wonderfully joyful, exceedingly joyful. So Psalm 98 has a small fulfillment in the birth of Christ, has a greater fulfillment later. There will be a day, you know, that kings of the earth will bring their treasures to the Messiah. One day Jesus Christ will have other kings from other nations bring him offerings and adore him. That's coming one day. Can you imagine President Biden, President Trump, President Obama, President Bush all bringing things to King Jesus, all saying, we are not worthy, you are worthy. Or being punished and in hell bowing the knee and saying and confessing that no, he is the victor, he is the Lord. Either way, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Let, let's, uh, we've got Israel in on the worship. We've got the nations in on the worship. Hey, while we're at it, let's get the creation in on the worship. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. That's figurative, obviously, right? Okay, rivers don't have hands. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. You know this about the creation, right? The creation currently is groaning, Romans chapter 8. So God creates the earth and it's repeated in Genesis 1 and 2. That's good. Look at that oak tree. How beautiful is that? That's good. Look at that river. That's good. Adam and Eve, the stewards over creation, the ones meant to rule as God would rule the creation. Adam and Eve meant to steward the creation. Sin, rebel against God. And here's, here's the lesson. Sin doesn't just affect you. Sin against God doesn't just affect you. Your children now, Adam and Eve, will have that disease. Cain killing Abel. But Adam, as you work now, there will be thorns and thistles. Even the creation's going to be difficult. The creation's going to groan. For every garden, you're going to have a place of weeds. It's, that's because of sin. God shows us in the creation 
the effects of sin. When you see fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, weeds in your garden, you're meant to think of sin. Rebellion against God costs something. It makes life hard. But isn't God gracious? He still lets us plant gardens, and we see the Grand Canyon and beautiful rivers. Have you been to Bend, Oregon, by the way? I mean, beautiful river right through. Why is that there? Because God's still gracious. There are tornadoes and ice storms, and you still get rivers. You still get beauty. So you see in creation the effects of the curse. Sin is bad, but you also see God's still gracious, and that's where we live right now. You see the effects of the curse on creation. Romans 8, it's groaning. And Romans 8 says it's groaning in hope. One, one day, it's as if the rivers are saying, one day there won't be any pollution in us. One day there won't be any more tornadoes. As if the hills are saying, one day there won't be any more fires. There's, there's hope that the creation has. Well, here it is. It's in the second coming when Christ comes to judge. The rivers start clapping. The hills are singing for joy together. That's the picture. And again, they're singing for joy because of the judgment that God is going to bring. Now, when we think of judgment, we don't automatically think of joy, do we? Christ is going to come and punish all of his enemies and right all wrongs. That's more scary than it is joyful. So it's important to go to the Bible and to see why would that be joyful? Let me give you some reasons. God will be shown to be just. Again, no wrong ever committed is gotten away with. Kids, you might think that wrong thing you've done, you know, mom and dad don't know, but someone does. And adults, us too. All wrongs will be righted. All wrongs will be punished. They'll either be punished on you and I if we're outside of Christ, or they'll be punished on Christ. They were punished on Him on the cross. But every single wrong will be righted, will be dealt with. Every single one. And that's something we all want. Again, we all want that when, it's, when there are problems with other people and problems with the outside world. God, if you don't save that person, punish them because look at what they're doing. But that happens for us too. All of our sins punished on Christ or if we don't trust in Christ for that salvation. We receive the punishment for that, but all wrongs will be right. We want perfect justice. You see this all throughout the world. The world is clamoring for justice. A new protest every day against some group, some person. Something's always wrong. There's always a petition to sign. And us Christians, are we want justice done now on the earth. We're supposed to be just right now when we have the opportunity to be just, but ultimately we're waiting for the final justice of Christ. One day he'll right all the wrongs. So we can thank God and even find joy in the fact that all heinous wrongs, all wrongs will be dealt with, and that's a good thing. Secondly, another reason we can find cause for joy in the judgment that's coming in the future after judgment comes, comes the end of the struggle with sin. Can you imagine waking up in the morning knowing, I am going to respond perfectly to everything today. <laughs> I'm not going to stick my foot in my mouth. 
I'm not going to mistreat anyone with my words. When judgment comes, the new heavens and the new earth come, and there's no more sin. So yes, you can see why creation, why the rivers are clapping their hands. You can see why we long for that. Another reason the Bible speaks to the fact that we can have a certain hope and a certain joy waiting for judgment to come, sorrows cease. It's not just sin that ceases, sorrows cease. Romans 8.18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not just that there's sorrow and then there won't be any sorrow later. It's that there's sorrow now and there's a greater glory come that will engulf the sorrow. In some way, we will not mourn the losses that we've had in heaven. There will be a greater glory. You can see this in Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, when he wrote Ecclesiastes. Remember that famous chapter? Um, I think it was the birds in the 60s, you know, ripped off. Um, everything is, has a time. There's a time for this. There's a time for that. There's a time for weeping. There's a time for laughter. Well, th- that section in Ecclesiastes 3 ends with, and God makes all things beautiful in its time, in His time. So it's not just that there's mourning sometimes and then laughter, and then we're kind of at neutral. It's, it's not saying that. It's saying on earth, that's what it's like. But He makes all things all the whole sum of the wrongs and the rights, he turns them all into beauty in his time. And one day will be his time. In the future, there will be a time, not just when all of the sadness will end, but all of the glory will engulf it. Lewis and Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, two friends, two great writers, you know them as the authors of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis, and the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, uh, they talked about this together. In fact, in Lord of the Rings, Tolkien wrote this question, is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer is yes. And then Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future happiness can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Somehow, God is going to turn those things into a cause for glory. How? I don't know. But that's what the text says. And if he's proven himself faithful so often, we can count on him for that. We can trust The fact that not just sin will cease, but all sorrows will cease. And isn't that such a great picture in Revelation where it says that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eye. God himself. The Holy Spirit writing the book of Revelation, giving the revelation to John, wants us to know that this is a personal removal of suffering. God cares to remove our suffering. So think about the things that upset us in the here and now and know that one day all of those things will be righted and we can find joy in that. 
I mean, imagine living in a world where you see so much wrong and all of that will be gotten away with. That's not our world. That's not. All wrongs will be dealt with. And as he punishes those wrongs, he at the same time will come and save his people. We can, make, we can wait for God to make all things right, and because he will make all things right, we can find joy in that. So Christians are really the only ones that can tell each other everything will be okay. We're the only people that can rightly say that. Everything will be okay, brother. Everything will be okay, sister. It will be. You can find joy in that. That's why when you become a Christian, Peter said that we, we've been born again to a living hope. It's not just that you've been born again and now you have the Holy Spirit in you and you can live righteously. You're born again to how you think about the future and the present. We're born again to a living hope because He's going to come and rightly judge. He will judge the world with righteousness. No bribes will be given to Him. Nobody can kind of cozy up and say, hey, I wasn't the greatest person, but I got a lot of cash here. Take this. I mean, judge me righteous. No, he will judge with righteousness. He'll judge rightly. And with equity, everyone's on the same level here. He'll judge rightly. There's no partiality here. He'll judge rightly. So notice in this passage, early on, God is said to be Savior, and here He's said to be judge. He will be one of those two for every one of us, either Savior or judge. I hope that you see the salvation that God offers found in His Son, and that He would be your Savior, not your judge. He is both. He will be one or the other to everyone. But this whole period in human history is going on because God is gracious. Uh, let me read to you a passage you, you probably know. I'm sure you've all heard. I want you to pay attention to this. I read the first part of it earlier. For God loved the world in this particular way, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he could have rightly determined that would be the time to punish all rebellion. He could have done that, but that's not why he came in his first coming. He came to offer eternal life for those that would believe in him, trust that he's the one to bring you to the Father, to reconcile you to the Father. This whole era right now is an era of grace, but it doesn't last forever. God is patient with people, but He's also got a wrath for those that hurt one another and continue rebelling against Him, and that, that wrath is bubbling up, if you will. But He's still waiting because He's patient and He's gracious. So please don't spurn the grace of a good God. He's merciful. You can find salvation by coming to Him. That's what the Gospel of John says in chapter 3. But in John chapter 5, it says that judgment has been given into the hands of Jesus Christ and He will come one day 
and judge the earth. So I would encourage you, find, find life in coming to Christ. Take all of your sins, your shortcomings, take everything that you've done wrong to God and to other people. Come to the one you've offended and say, will you forgive me for all of this? And the one who comes, calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Will by no means be cast out. So two reasons that we can sing for joy. He's revealed salvation. We see that in him sending his son. And he's going to come and bring judgment. I want to end with this. David told us that God has shown salvation by the strength of his arm, by his right hand. The right hand is a way of saying how he orders everything. He's shown salvation how he orders everything for his people. He ordered that the Amalekites would be defeated. He ordered that Jericho would fall. He ordered that the Assyrians would fall and not defeat his people. He ordered that his own son would be sent on that night in that place, fulfilling all of the Old Testament scripture. He ordered all of that with his right hand. He's brought salvation. He is powerful and capable, providential. He controls it all for our good, people of God. He's shown the strength of his arm. But notice when Jesus came, the arms of God, needing to be swaddled, needing to be cared for. Why? Why would the strong arm of God be found in the arm of a baby? Because God himself came to experience the effects of the curse for the people that lived under it. Hebrews 4 says, you've got someone that knows what it's like to be you. Jesus Christ, your high priest, go to him. He understands. It shows the beautiful humility of God that his strong arm would then be an arm of a baby. And that's who he is. You can see it about 33 years later when his arms are spread out on a cross. The strong arm of God achieving salvation for you by having his own arms pulverized. His arms, showing his love. We can't just gloss over that. This is all for us. This is all for those who are his children. So I know that life might not look like what you want it to look like right now, but he's coming to right all wrongs. And he's achieved salvation by the power of his strong arms. In Deuteronomy, he told his people, the eternal God is our refuge and we find shelter underneath his everlasting arms. So Christians, you know this, I always tell you this. Christians are to be the most optimistic people on the planet. How you doing with that? We are to be the most optimistic people on the planet because we know what's going to happen. And we know who's rescued us. And we can be the most joyful people on the planet because even though it's cursed, it will be uncursed one day. And we will be with him in glory. So life is hard. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. Suffering is real. And yet we have great causes for joy. I'll finish by saying this. 
I think you can connect the amount of joy we have to the amount of time that we spend thinking on the things of God. It's not enough to come for an hour and a half, once a week, try to conjure up some joy from the scriptures, and then go home and start to consume all of the fear again. The TV, the internet, whatever it is that tempts you to fear. And please stop tempting one another to fear. Have you seen this or that? Have you seen this? I, I, I know who I am right now, how I'm loved, and I know what's going to happen in the future, and I know what my job is right now. And all of that's under the everlasting arms of God. So, let's spend time with our Lord. Let's listen to the promises that He's promised. Let's find our joy there. Yes, it's a dark world, but the darkness cannot overwhelm the light. It cannot. Let's pray together. Father, you're so good to us, so loving. You save in so many ways over and over again. You rescue us from certain temptation and dangers, and ultimately you save through Jesus Christ, your Son. We're thankful for what we have. We pray that as we live in this world full of sickness, pain, darkness, which is real and we feel it, just like your Son felt it, we pray that you would bring our minds back to your word, which grounds us, which brings joy, which brings a living hope, which brings trust. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.